Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from I Could Never Believe in a God Who, our series in which we examine and respond to serious objections to Christianity. Here is Pastor Nick. Do you know what I want to talk about and boast about? I'll boast about my weakness. And he's going to tell us why in a moment as we go on. But he says this in verse 7. He says, So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of this revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You see, there would be a temptation for anybody who had an experience like what Paul had to become conceited, right? To become condescending towards others, to to think that they're better than other people. And Paul was not immune to that temptation. And so in order to keep him humble, God gave Paul what he calls a thorn in the flesh. In other words, the only reason Paul tells us about this heavenly vision at all is to explain why God gave him the thorn in the flesh. In other words, Paul's like, look, we, we want all the juicy details. Paul, tell us about your vision. Tell us how it happened. Tell us what you saw. And Paul's like, you know what? The vision, I don't want to talk about the vision. The only reason I bring up the vision is to explain to you the reason why I have this thorn in the flesh. Apparently, the thorn in the flesh was some kind of affliction or some kind of ailment that, that Paul knew about and other people could know about it, right? It was something that other, it was obvious to other people. They could see it or they could see what it was. And clearly some people thought less of Paul because of this thorn that he had in his flesh. And yet they didn't understand the profound spiritual experience which lay behind his thorn in the flesh, Again, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what this thorn in the flesh was. And people have speculated about for a long time what it was. But I'll just suffice to say this. The overwhelming majority of scholars on this topic believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh was some kind of physical ailment that he suffered from. And most scholars believe it was something to do with his eyes. And that would make a lot of sense because there, there are about three passages in the New Testament which allude to the fact that Paul had a serious problem with his eyes. One of them is found in his letter to the Galatians, which is interesting because he went to Galatia right after he went to Lystra, which is when we would say, you know, timeline lines up, that first missionary journey. He says in his letter to the Galatians, when I came to you, you showed me so much love, so much hospitality and kindness. He says, you would have been willing to gouge out your own eyes and give them to me. Well, why would, I mean, I don't come to your house and ask you to gouge out your eyes for me, right? Why? Because I don't have a problem with my eyes. But right, Paul clearly had some kind of issue with his eyes. At the end of Galatians, uh, he's been writing through a scribe. He's been dictating to a scribe. And at the end of Galatians, he takes the pen in his own hands. He says, see what large letters I write to you with my own hand. Why would he write with large letters? Well, maybe because he had a problem with his eyes. Another reason is in the book of Acts, Paul is, is on trial and someone speaks to him and Paul speaks back and then he gets slapped in the face and they say, how dare you speak to the high priest that way? And Paul was like, I didn't, I didn't notice, that, I didn't see that that was the high priest. Well, a high priest wore special clothes. You couldn't not know that that was the high priest unless 
you had something wrong with your eyes. So it's very possible that Paul had uh, something very wrong with his eyes. But whatever this thorn in the flesh was, it wasn't fun. Let's put it that way. Now, when we tend to think of thorns, right, we tend to think of like, a minor irritation, maybe like the thorns that you experience on like a rose bush, like every rose has its thorn, right? But the words that Paul, the word that Paul uses for thorn here in this passage doesn't describe a little irritation, like a little prickle, right? No, it describes a tent stake. That's what the word uh, can be translated as, a tent stake, not a thumbtack. And so the thorn in the flesh, think about this. He says this thorn in the flesh, it's like having a tent stake pounded into your body. That's what it feels like. He describes this thorn as a messenger from Satan to harass him. Now that word harass, it literally means to punch with fists. Paul's saying this thing, it just, it's beating me up, man. It's just beating me up. And here's the thing I want you to notice. He says in verse seven, he says this thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan that just beat him up. He says it was given to me. Now think about that because it's very profound what Paul's saying here. Think about this. Paul considered this great trial, this thorn in the flesh, to be a gift. Now, I really want to stop there and talk about this. I want to say this again. Paul considered this thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan to, to buffet him. He considered it a gift. He doesn't say, uh, this thorn in the flesh was inflicted upon me. No, he says it was given to me. And and who is it given to him by? By God. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Let me ask you this. Have you ever received a gift that you didn't really want, that maybe you didn't enjoy, right? Something ugly, but you can't get rid of it because every time that person comes over, they're gonna be looking for it to make sure you still have it. Or maybe it's something that, hey, somebody gives you something and now it costs you a ton of money to maintain that thing. And you're like, well, thanks, I was fine without it and I didn't really want it, but now you've given it to me and I can't get rid of it. Well, that's how Paul felt about this thorn in the flesh when he first received it at least. He understood that God allowed it and maybe it was useful, but he didn't really like it. He didn't enjoy it. It was painful. It was like having a tent stake pounded into his body. It was visible. And on top of everything, other people judged him for it. And more than anything, it hurt. It was beating him up. And yet, Paul has come to this point in his life by the time he writes this letter where he's able to look at that thorn in his flesh and say, this affliction was God's gift to me because of what it accomplished in my life. Now, I just wanna stop right there and I want to ask you to think about that. I wonder if there's some area in your life where you feel attacked, where you feel beat up, Maybe it's something that just really hurts, whether it's physically or even emotionally. And I just want to ask you this question. Is it possible, is it possible that that thorn has been allowed in your life by God as a gift because of what he will use it for and what he will accomplish through it? I want you to ask yourself that question. Two weeks ago, I gave you a list of six ways that we can see in the Bible that God uses suffering for good. And at that time, two weeks ago, we kind of had to speed through the list. So I thought, you know what? We need to revisit this because this is important. So this week, that's what we're going to do just for the next minute or so. We're going to look through these six points and, and spend just a second talking about each of them. Six ways that God uses suffering in our lives as a gift. 
Number one, God uses suffering to produce humility in us. That's what we're seeing here in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. That as Paul looks at this thing, he says, this thorn in my flesh, it's a gift. Here's why. Because it keeps me humble. You guys know this? It's a good thing to be humble. You should never be afraid of God working in your life to make you humble. You know why? Because throughout the Bible, we're told that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The last thing we should ever want to be is proud. Being proud, that is maybe the most dangerous thing that can ever happen to you. Because at the end of the day, pride is the reason why people perish, even eternally. Pride is what it's all about because you're unwilling to humble yourself before God and pursue his mercy and seek his mercy and receive his grace. Pride is the reason why Lucifer was cast down from heaven. Pride is, the root of, is at the root of all sins. It destroys relationships. Have you ever experienced that? Relationships destroyed by pride? It creates a barrier, not just between you and other people, it creates a barrier between you and God. Is that what you want? Do you want that? I don't think you do. I know I don't. Well, then, in that case, anything that God uses to root out pride in my life and produce humility in me is a gift. And one of the ways he does that is sometimes through suffering. Another way God uses suffering is that he uses suffering to draw people to himself. An example of this is seen in the prodigal son, right? In Luke chapter uh, 15, right? The prodigal son, or he turns his back on his father and he leaves home. And that story, it's a picture of who we are and, and what we do to God. We say, God, I don't want you. I don't need you. I want to do my own thing. And I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want you to stop me from doing what I want to do. I'm just going to go do it. And so the prodigal son goes off and he does his own thing until at one point he runs out of money, he finds himself hungry and dirty and poor. And it's at that point that he remembers his father's house and he says, you know what, even the servants in my father's house have it better off than I do. You know what, maybe if I swallow my pride and I go back home, my dad will be willing to receive me as a slave. I'm sure he won't take me back as a son after all that I've done, after the ways that I've insulted him, after the ways that I've sinned. Surely he won't take me back as a son, but maybe he'll receive me back as a slave. That would still be better for me than where I'm at right now. And again, if you know the story, the prodigal son goes back and his father is so happy to see him. He runs to meet him as he comes down the road. He embraces him, puts his ring on him, kills the fattened calf, throws a party for him. And he says, my son who was dead is now alive. Come and rejoice with me. And the point is, this is the story of us. This is the story of God. This is an allegory of who God is and who we are. And it's important for us to note this thing, that when the prodigal son was suffering, that was when he started thinking about coming home. It was when he suffered. And sometimes God uses suffering in our lives to draw us to himself. There are plenty of people, and sometimes us, right, that the only time we think about God is when we've got a problem. And so God says, you know, if that's what it takes, then so be it. Another, another passage in this light is this. In Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible, the, the psalmist says this, before I was afflicted, I used to go astray, but now I keep your word. And he says, it was good for me that I was afflicted so that I would learn your statutes. And he says, in your faithfulness, God, you afflicted me. 
See, the psalmist apparently uh, experienced some kind of affliction, and yet he's glad that it happened because God used it in his life to stop him from wandering away all the time and to bring him back to God, bring him to his knees through this thing to get his attention again. And I wonder if there are some of you, you say, you know what? There was a time in my life where I went through something that I hope I never go through ever again, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because God used it to bring me to my knees and bring me back to him and and help me to receive grace and mercy and bring me to trust Jesus. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. We have implemented procedures to ensure your safety as we gather for worship and studying God's Word. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person, at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. Number three, God allows suffering to build perseverance, character, and hope. In Romans 8, verse 29, we're told that God's purpose in your life is to shape you into the image of Jesus. In Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, we're told that one of the ways that God shapes us most significantly is through trials and struggles and difficulties and hardships. Number four, God allows suffering to help you develop compassion kindness and empathy for others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about how when we go through hardship and difficulty, God will use that to create empathy in us, to make us empathetic and compassionate people whom he can use then in the future to minister to other people who go through similar things as we go through. Number five, God uses suffering to advance the gospel. In Philippians chapter one, Paul has gone through some awful, terrible, unjust things. He's been the victim of corruption. His friends have stabbed him in the back. He's been accused of crimes he didn't commit. And Paul says there in Philippians one, he says, you know what? All of the things that have happened to me have been used by God for the furtherance of the gospel. And in that, I rejoice. Number six, suffering can be used to bring glory to God. In John chapter 9, the gospel of John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are walking next to the pool of Bethesda and they see a man who was born blind, or sorry, the pool of Siloam, and they see this man who was born blind and they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, they're assuming that this man's affliction was some kind of punishment from God, some kind of retribution for something that somebody did wrong. That's how many people think about hardship, isn't it? That's how many people think today. It's reflected when we say this sentence, God, what have I done to deserve this? But Jesus told his disciples there, he said, look, nobody did anything to deserve this. It wasn't that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, sometimes suffering is used to bring glory to God. Paul received a gift, but it was an unwanted gift And we know that it was unwanted because of how he responded. That's the second point we have here, which is this. An unanswered prayer. In verse eight, Paul says this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul prayed about this issue multiple times and he prayed passionately. He pleaded, he begged God to take this away from him. And yet Paul's prayer was not answered. So Paul prayed again, right? Why? Was Paul praying wrong? Did he not have enough faith? No, what we see as we go on is that there was something bigger that God was doing. That's our third point. An unexpected strength in verses nine and 10. 
Paul says this in verse nine. But he said to me, that's God. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The reason Paul's prayer wasn't answered wasn't because Paul prayed wrong. It wasn't because Paul didn't have enough faith. The reason Paul's prayer wasn't answered was because God said no. That's why God said no to his request. Now, wait a second. Let me bring you back to those verses we talked about at the beginning. Didn't Jesus say that if a person has faith and prays in his name, then God will give them whatever they ask? Yes, that's what it says. But apparently, God reserves the right to say no. See, the idea of praying in Jesus' name, this means praying according to his will. It means praying according to his authority and his purposes. Kind of like if I were to send you to the post office to pick something up in my name. I'm sending you to do it according to my desire and according to my authority. So God reserves the right to say no to any of our requests. That's what it means that he's God. See, it isn't that God doesn't hear our prayers. It's not even that God doesn't answer our prayers. It's that sometimes he answers them with a no. That's a legitimate answer to say no or to say not right now. See, here's what God's promise means when he says that he will give us whatever we ask in Jesus' name. It means this. God will either give you what you ask or he will give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. Think about that. God will either give you what you ask or he will give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. See, look at how Paul responds to God's answer to his request. Verse 10, he says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's detractors had accused him of being weak. They looked down on him for his infirmities. But Paul says, I'm not embarrassed about my weakness. Rather, I glory in my weakness because see, look, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong because it's not my strength. It's God's strength that work in me. And God can do more through my weakness than I could ever do in my own strength. And maybe you say, well, hey, look, Easy for Paul, right? You know why? Because at least Paul got an answer from God as to why this was happening to him, as to what God's purpose was with this affliction was that he was, he was suffering. I don't even know what God's purpose is with what's happening to me. I don't know why God's not giving me what I'm asking for. What if, now, now hear me out, okay? What if prayer is not so much about getting what we want and is more about achieving what God wants? What if prayer is not so much about getting what we want as it is about getting what God wants and achieving what God wants? Maybe uh, you should say, now maybe you would say, well, wait a second. You say prayer is about getting, accomplishing what God wants. Well, can't God just accomplish what he wants without my involvement anyway? Of course he can, yeah. But what if through prayer, God is not just accomplishing his work in the world, he's also accomplishing his work in the world while at the same time accomplishing his work in you. See, we often think about prayer kind of like uh, we think about vending machines. And by the way, if you ever want to see the worst of humanity on display, go to YouTube and watch videos of people angry at vending machines. You're going to be like, what? You know, just so many videos of people uh, fighting vending machines. Sometimes I even saw one where the vending machine fought back and landed on somebody who was hitting it, which was, you know, some poetic justice there. So 
And we think about God in prayer like a vending machine, right? Like prayer is the currency. If you put it in and it's not wrinkled, then you'll get the thing that you want, right? You push the right button, put in the right amount of money, then you get the, the desired outcome. You get the product that you want. And if it doesn't work, then you get angry because it means the machine is broken. So you kick the machine and you hit the machine. See, what we've learned from looking at Paul here in 2 Corinthians is that sometimes God's purpose in prayer isn't just to give you what you want, but to accomplish something inside of you, something beyond you, something even outside of you. See, you got to come to this place of submitting your life and your will to his purpose, which is bigger than yours. Now, don't take me wrong. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask Actually, I think that we should come to God with everything. We should ask all the more knowing this. We should come to God with every desire, every request, every wish. Look what Timothy Keller has to say about prayer. He says this, to pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. To fail to pray is not merely to break some religious rule. It is failure to treat God as God. See, when we pray, We should pray with hearts that are fully, truly trusting in God and in his absolute goodness, in his perfect wisdom, in his knowledge of what is right and what is needed. And I'll just conclude by saying this. You know, Paul isn't the only person in the Bible to have one of his prayers go unanswered or to be answered with a no. There was another whose request was denied and his faith was perfect. He had done nothing wrong to merit God punishing him by not granting his request. And yet he asked God for something and the response God gave was no. Now, of course, you might've picked up on what I was putting down. I'm talking about Jesus, who on the night before he was crucified, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed because he knew what awaited him. He knew that he was going to be crucified and on that cross, he would bear our sins and he would receive the judgment that we deserved. And in that moment, he was so gripped with fear and anxiety that he prayed and he begged the Father saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In fact, it tells us that he prayed this prayer multiple times that night. And the answer that came back each time was no. There was no other way to accomplish the mission which Jesus had come to accomplish, to provide salvation and a way for us to be redeemed and reconciled to God and saved for eternity. See, in Jesus, we see the perfect posture of prayer. He makes his request known to God, and and yet he's completely submitted to the will of the Father for the response. That phrase, not my will, but your will be done, it expresses complete trust in God's wisdom, God's goodness, and God's love. And ultimately, aren't we so thankful that God told him no? Aren't we so thankful that in the garden, Jesus accepted that no and submitted to the will of the Father? The result of that unanswered prayer is our salvation. But I will tell you this, until you can say, your will be done to God from the bottom of your heart, you will never know peace. Until you can say from the bottom of your heart to God, your will be done, you will never know peace. And it's by looking to the cross that we see who God truly is, what his character is truly like, that he loves us so much that he would come to us and give his life to save us. If he loves you that much, then you can trust in him, even when he says no, even when he says, not right now. 
So may we be those who look to the cross and embrace what Jesus did. And as we fix our eyes on the cross, may, we, may that become the lens through which we view our entire lives. Understanding that the God who loves you that much is the one who is working in your life, even in the hard things, to bring about something beautiful. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can have this kind of trust in you. Lord, that you are a God who works even through the difficult things, even through the hard things, even through the uncomfortable things, Lord, to bring about good because that is how much you love us. Lord, may we be those who trust in you. May we be those who view all of our lives and all of our circumstances through the lens of the cross, understanding that you are a good and wise God who loves us. Lord, your love on display on the cross. Lord, help us to keep that at the forefront of our minds. And Lord, help us to really filter everything that we experience, everything that we think through that lens, understanding that you are the God who loves us. Therefore, anything you bring into our lives, even the difficult things, is something you wanna use in order to accomplish your work in us and through us. So Lord, may we submit ourselves to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.